two best friends, a small town in Indiana, and a case that would make national headlines. The brutal murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German have haunted a nation. More than four years later, and despite both audio and video evidence of the alleged perpetrator, we are still no closer to solving who committed this heinous act. It's up to us to spread awareness about this case and get justice for these two young girls. This is the Delphi Murders. Delphi, Indiana is a small town just northwest of Indianapolis. There are just under 3,000 people who live in Delphi, and it's pretty rural with a lot of farmland and plains. 14-year-old Liberty German, who went by Libby, and 13-year-old Abigail Williams, who went by Abby, were both in the 8th grade and were the best of friends. They were both in band and played volleyball together, Libby was said to be very friendly and outspoken. She was a big baker. She loved making treats for her friends and family. Libby would also leave sticky notes all over the house with notes that said things like, I love you, to her grandmother. Abby was quieter than Libby, but she was said to be a joyful spirit. She loved arts and crafts, photography, and knitting. She loved making things to give as gifts to other people. The girls were also mini true crime aficionados, and it's said that Libby even wanted to pursue a career in forensics when she grew up. Our story begins on February 12th, 2017, the day before these young girls would be taken from us forever. It was a Sunday, and Abby actually slept over at Libby's house that night. And this was because the next day, Monday, February 13th, was a day off from school for the girls. It was a built-in snow day, which I actually didn't even know was a thing until I heard about this case, but essentially schools will have certain days that are blocked off for making up snow days. And then if there ends up not being a snow day, then the kids will have that day off from school. So that's what ended up happening on February 13th, and the night before, the girls had a sleepover together where they painted and watched movies. The next day, Monday, February 13th, was an unusually nice day for February in Indiana. It was around the mid-40s to low-50s, which doesn't sound super warm to me, but it was a really nice day for Indiana in the middle of winter. And being a small town, there's not really much to do in Delphi, but there are a bunch of really beautiful historical trails. And one of those is the Monin High Bridge Trails, which was a local staple in town. The Monin High Bridge is an extremely tall, old, rickety bridge. 
It's a former railroad track, which explains why it isn't what you would usually picture when you think of a bridge. There's no railings or anything like that. It's more of a bunch of wooden planks thrown together with pretty large gaps in between them, uh, almost large enough for someone to even fall through. So this is definitely a bridge that I, being afraid of heights, would probably never get on in a million years. But you can imagine that for two young girls, it's kind of a thrill and an adrenaline rush to be on this bridge and take pictures to post on social media. And because they were both really into photography and the outdoors, Libby and Abby had been on this bridge and on these trails before to take photos. So on that day, Libby and Abby asked Libby's older sister, Kelsey, if she could drop them off at the Monin High Bridge Trail. Kelsey was 17 at the time, and initially she had said no because she had a busy day herself and had to work later. But she felt kind of guilty about it, and so eventually she did agree to drop them off as long as they could find a ride back home. So Libby called her dad, who agreed to pick them up from the trails later that day. And so the girls headed out to the Monin High Bridge trails. The trails are not very far at all from Libby's house, so it didn't take them long to get there. Kelsey dropped the girls off at around 1.38 p.m. And there are two major drop-off locations for these trails. The first is at the Freedom Bridge, which is a little farther north from the Monin High Bridge trails. The second drop-off location is a little farther down and closer to the actual Monin High Bridge. So it's at that second farther down location where Kelsey dropped the girls off. And I believe that this location is called the Mary Gerard Nature Reserve. Kelsey doesn't recall seeing anything unusual when she dropped the girls off at the parking lot, but we can assume that there were at least a few other cars there at the time, since there were a fair amount of people at the trails today. Again, it was a Monday, but it was a day off from school and really nice out, so there were a decent amount of people on the trails that day. Uh, so the timeline of this day, and more specifically this afternoon, is really important to this case, so we're going to spend some time on it now and also talk about it later in much more detail. So at around 1.38 p.m., Kelsey drops the girls off at that second drop-off location, and she knows that it couldn't have been any earlier than 1.38 because that is when she received a call from her boyfriend and she remembers being on the phone with him when she dropped the girls off. At 2.07 p.m., so less than 30 minutes from when the girls were dropped off, Libby posts a photo to Snapchat, and this photo is of Abby crossing the Monin High Bridge. So in this photo, Abby is on the bridge looking down at her feet, because like I mentioned, this is a pretty scary bridge, and you have to really pay attention to where you're placing your feet so that you don't fall through the gaps. So Abby is on the bridge walking towards Libby, who is further down the bridge taking this picture. And when I was looking at this timeline, I did have a question about what the girls were doing between around 1.38 when Kelsey dropped them off 
and 207, which is when this photo of the bridge uh, was posted. Because you have to keep in mind, from the where the girls were dropped off to the start of the Monon High Bridge is not very far at all. I think at most it might have taken the girls 10 to 15 minutes to get from that point to the start of the bridge. But the more I thought about it, I realized that the girls were probably not in a rush. They were probably stopping to take pictures and posting on social media and talking and whatnot. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that it could have taken them 30 minutes or so from the time they arrived to the time this photo was taken. I think it's also important to note that there is no one on the bridge behind Abby in this photo, at least no one who we can see. So there is a question of where the perpetrator was at this point in time. Had he already spotted the girls? Was he waiting to cross the bridge and we just can't see him in this photo? Or was he possibly already waiting for the girls on the other side of the bridge? We don't know and that is a point of debate in this case. So the end of this bridge is basically a dead end. There aren't any more trails on the other side of the bridge. It's basically just woods and wilderness and private property. So the girls would have had to cross back over the bridge in order to get back to the trails. However, we know that they weren't able to cross back over because sometime after that photo was taken of Abby, Libby begins taking a video of an unknown man walking on the bridge towards them. And it's widely accepted that this man, who is known on the internet as Bridge Guy, is the perpetrator of these crimes. Only about a second of this video has been released to the public, but we know that there is more to the video that just hasn't been released. At the time this video was taken, the man is about 65 feet away from the girls, so he's quite far from them. And because he's so far away, the video is quite grainy, but you can tell that he's looking down, presumably again because you kind of have to do that when you're crossing this bridge. But he's walking rather quickly. I mean, he's not like sprinting or anything, but he's also not walking, you know, super slowly, which is probably what I would do if I ever had to cross this bridge. You can't really see his face because he's looking down, but you can tell that he is wearing a blue jacket and blue jeans and also possibly a hat. Now, keep that description in mind because later on we'll be talking about a few witnesses who saw someone who is eerily similar to this video. When you consider just how far away this guy is from these girls at this point, it really begs the question of why did Libby feel the need to start filming? Because at this point, we can assume that he's so far away from them that he probably hadn't done anything yet to overtly threaten them. There is the speculation that this man just happened to be in the background of another video that the girls were already taking of themselves or of the bridge or whatever, and that's why we have this footage, just kind of happenstance. Personally, I don't really believe that this video was taken 
just by accident. I do think it was a purposeful decision that Libby made to film this man. And I'll talk about later the several reasons why I believe that. So at 3.11 p.m., Derek, who is Libby's father, calls Libby to tell her that he's close to the trails to pick them up. However, Libby doesn't answer the phone. I'm not sure if the phone rang, but she didn't pick it up, or if it went straight to voicemail. I am inclined to think that the phone did ring, because later on, Kelsey would also call Libby, and she reported that she believes that the phone did in fact ring. At 3.14pm, Derek pulls into the parking lot where the girls were dropped off, but he doesn't see them, so he calls Libby again, and once again she does not pick up. So Derek parks the car and begins walking the trails to see if he can find the girls himself. A few minutes later, Derek sees a man wearing a flannel shirt coming down the 501 trail, which is the trail that leads to the high bridge. So this guy is walking away from the bridge, and Derek asks this man, have you seen two girls walking the trails? And the guy in the flannel shirt says, no, I haven't. And so because he says that he didn't see the girls on the 501 trail, Derek takes a different trail called the 505 trail, which is in a slightly different direction. By 3.30 p.m., Derek still hasn't spotted the girls, so he calls Libby's grandmother, Becky, to tell her that the girls are nowhere to be found. And so both Becky and Libby's aunt begin calling and texting Libby at this time, but get no response. Um, And I had a question about, you know, did Abby have a phone on her? And I discovered that Abby actually didn't have a phone. She wasn't allowed to have one. So it was just Libby that had a phone that day. So Derek then walks the Freedom Trail, which leads to the Freedom Bridge, which is in the opposite direction of the Monin Bridge. And like I mentioned, this is a completely different bridge and different trail in the opposite direction. He doesn't see the girls there either, so he walks back towards where he parked his car, and it is said that he passes the man in the flannel shirt again. By 4 p.m., the entire family has been notified and are looking for the girls. So this includes Libby's father, her grandparents, her aunt, and her sister. At this point, the family is worried, but I don't think they necessarily thought something terrible had happened. They thought that the girls got lost or got hurt and were stranded somewhere, or maybe Libby lost her phone, something like that. But at 5.20 p.m., the family ends up calling the police and reporting the girls as missing. Abby's mom, Anna, was at work at this time, so Libby's family wasn't able to get a hold of her until a little while later. Shortly after the family reports the girls as missing, the police arrive on the scene and start searching for the girls. Family members also post on Facebook and social media asking if anyone has seen the girls. And this leads to a large group of volunteers to arrive at the trails and aid in the search. Because remember, Delphi is a pretty small town and so word travels fast. A search is conducted from around 6pm to midnight at around 
midnight, the search is actually called off by law enforcement because it was quite dark out and the police were worried about the safety of the volunteers. This decision to call off the search would later become quite controversial, with many people disagreeing with this decision. However, it is reported that many people stayed behind and continued to search unofficially, even after the official search had been called off. The next morning, volunteers and police continued to search the trail for the girls. A command center for volunteers was set up at the Delphi Fire Station. At this point, the volunteers were split up into groups that were each responsible for searching different areas of the town. Kelsey, who remember is Libby's older sister, was part of the group that went out towards the Monon High Bridge to search. And Kelsey recalls that she was standing at the end of the bridge when she remembers hearing someone yell that they had found a shoe. And this was identified by Kelsey as Libby's shoe. Shortly after that, the girls' bodies were found, and they were found in what I think is a really chilling way. Apparently, one of the volunteers had been using their phone camera to look across the creek, and this person saw two deer standing, and when they moved the camera down, that's when they spotted the bodies. At 2 p.m. that day, Carroll County Police and Indiana State Police have a press conference where they announce that they have discovered two bodies but do not identify them to be Libby and Abby. They do, however, say that they suspect foul play and that the bodies were found at the edge of Deer Creek. The next day, an autopsy was done and the bodies were confirmed to be those of Abby and Libby. A cause of death has never been revealed in this case. So let's dive into the location of where the girls were found. They were found on private property about a half mile from the dead end of the bridge right next to the Deer Creek, which is a body of water that runs alongside the Monon High Bridge. And if you want to, there are lots of videos on YouTube of people filming themselves walking through the area. I watched some videos that Julie Melvin posted on YouTube. Hoosier Cold Cases on YouTube also has some pretty good videos of the terrain. And I'm calling it the dead end side of the bridge. That's not totally accurate. It's not a dead end in the sense that you can't go any further. You can go further, but you will be off the trails, in the wilderness, and on what is technically private property. So after you get off the bridge, there is a hill. And presumably, this is the hill that the bridge guy is talking about when he says, down the hill. And this hill is pretty steep. It's hard to describe without a visual, so definitely encourage you to take a look at some of those videos I mentioned. But once you are down the hill, there is a private driveway that runs underneath the bridge and towards what I assume is eventually someone's house. And if you walk past the driveway, there's basically just wilderness and it's pretty rough terrain. It's quite hilly. And if you walk about half a mile through these woods, you will get to the Deer Creek. The bodies were found on the other side of the creek, past an embankment that is a few feet tall, 
And that is probably what was obscuring the searchers from easily seeing across this creek and spotting the bodies. So this part of the creek is quite shallow. I don't think it would come up to more than your ankles probably, so it wouldn't be too difficult to wade through the water to get to the other side. So presumably the girls were either ordered to cross the creek or they saw this as an opportunity to make a run for it and that's why they were found on the other side. Once you cross the creek, if you keep walking away from the creek, there is another big hill and a bunch more wilderness, and eventually you will get to the Delphi Cemetery. And there is a lot of speculation that maybe Bridge Guy parked at the cemetery, so maybe that is the escape route that he took after he killed the girls to get back to his car. And we'll talk about that theory a little later as well. At first, I did ask the question of why it took so long for the searchers to find the girls' bodies. Why did it take almost 24 hours of searching? And I think that fact leads some people to believe that maybe the bridge man actually took the girls to a secondary location before returning and dumping their bodies either overnight or the next day. And while I think that may be possible, I think it is highly unlikely that that is the case for a few reasons. First of all, it's incredibly difficult to move one dead body, let alone two. You're carrying dead weight, which is not easy. He almost certainly would have had to use a vehicle to return and dump the bodies, in which case either someone would have seen him or there would have been tire marks or signs that a vehicle had been in that area. Second of all, like I mentioned, even though the official search was called off, there were still a few people searching the area through the night, so it would have been incredibly risky for the perpetrator to come back to the scene. And law enforcement, I believe, have also outright said that the girls were killed where they were found, and I think that's accurate. You know, maybe he did intend to abduct the girls and take them somewhere else, but something went wrong, resulting in him killing them right then and there. That's a possibility. But I don't think he was successful in abducting them, if that was his primary goal. You also have to keep in mind when thinking about where the girls were found, they were not found on the trails, which I'm assuming is where most of the searches were concentrated. Because at this point, most people are still thinking that the girls just wandered off or got lost. So I don't think that they really considered searching that area south of the bridge too closely because they probably didn't think that the girls would have ventured off there. Also, by the time the bulk of the searches began that night, it was probably already getting dark. I mean, it was February, the sun sets pretty early, so by 6 or 7, I'm guessing, it was quite dark and difficult to see. So I think that kind of explains why it did take them almost a full day to find the girls. And I don't think that's indicative of the girls not having been there the entire time. They just couldn't find them. The other thought I have is that this guy had to have known where he was ordering the girls. He had to have known that the other side of the bridge 
is basically just a bunch of wilderness with no trails and no chance of them running into someone. Because otherwise, why take that risk of not knowing what was down the hill that you were ordering these girls down? And how would he have known that unless he had crossed that bridge before? Unless he had been to these trails before, been across that bridge, and probably even ventured through the private property and realized that there would likely be no one else there. And so that's why I really do think that this guy had to be familiar with this area. I don't see how he would be familiar with these trails if he didn't have some sort of tie to the area. This is not a major tourist attraction. The Monin High Bridge and these trails are known to the locals and the surrounding community, and that's pretty much it. And I don't think that necessarily means that he had to live in Delphi at that time, but I do think he has some sort of tie to the area. Whether he's from one of the surrounding towns, maybe he spent some time there in his childhood, maybe he grew up in Delphi or around there and later left, maybe he has some type of work that brings him to that area often, I don't know. But I think that he had to have been at least somewhat familiar with this area. There's just no other way in my mind that he could have pulled this off unless he had been there before. So let's continue on with the timeline. A few days after the girls' bodies were found, Indiana State Police held another press conference in this case. And at that press conference, they release a still photo of a man walking along the Monin High Bridge as well as the grainy audio of the man speaking. The photo and audio were both recorded on Libby's phone. A few months later, the police would also release the first of two sketches of the person of interest in this case. And I say first of two because there would much later be a second sketch released in the case, and that second sketch would become the primary sketch. But we'll discuss that a little later on. Um, I encourage you all to look up both the video and the sketch if you haven't already. And I will play the clip of the bridge guy now. So I will try to analyze this audio a little later on because I think it's super interesting and also super creepy, but let's continue with our timeline first. And I want to include a small disclaimer that a lot of this information I'm about to give you has not been confirmed by the police. Law enforcement has kept a lot about this case close to the vest, including information about the witnesses in this case. However, this information is generally thought to be pretty credible, which is why I think it's worth our time to go over it now. So, going back to Monday, February 13th, the day the girls were on those trails. At 1.26pm, a 16-year-old girl is with a group of friends near the Freedom Bridge, which, remember, is the main entrance to the trails and is up north further away from where the girls would be dropped off just a few minutes later. So this is about half a mile to a mile away from the girls' drop-off location. At 1.30 p.m., this 16-year-old notices a man 
and she says hi to him. And this man gives her a look that, for whatever reason, scares her. It's not said why this look scares her, but because it does, she remembers him. And when she later hears that the girls were missing, she calls in this tip. And this is before the girls' bodies were even found, before she had seen any of the video. She gives a description of this man. She says he is around 5 foot 6 inches tall, wearing blue jeans, a blue jacket, and a hoodie pulled up over a hat. She also said that he had something covering the lower half of his face, perhaps a white scarf. And this description would be the basis of the first of the two sketches in this case. So this is at around 1.30 p.m. And remember, the girls are said to have arrived at the other entrance, the Mary Gerard entrance, no earlier than 1.38 p.m. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to get from the Freedom Bridge, where the witness saw the man, to the entrance where the girls were dropped off. So, assuming that this witness did in fact see our perpetrator at 1.30pm, and that he was walking down towards the Mary Gerard entrance, it is possible that this guy was at that Mary Gerard entrance at around the same time that the girls were dropped off. So, it is possible that maybe he saw them getting dropped off, maybe the girls even saw him too and got that same creepy feeling that the 16-year-old witness did. We're not really sure what happened between around 1.38, 1.40, which is when the girls were dropped off, and 2.07 p.m. when the picture of Abby on the bridge was taken. Presumably, the girls were walking the 501 trail towards the Monon High Bridge around this time. Somewhere between 2.15 to 2.30, Libby takes the video of Bridge Guy on her phone. Now, this is interesting because, remember, we don't see Bridge Guy in the background of Libby's photo of Abby that was posted at 2.07, so presumably Bridge Guy is not yet on that bridge at the time that photo was taken. However, by around 2.15 or 2.30, when the video is taken, he is already in the middle of crossing the bridge. At around 2.45 to 2.50 p.m., another hiker, a woman, is said to have parked at the lot where the girls were dropped off. She walks the 501 trail to the Monin Bridge, crosses the bridge, and takes a photo at the south end of the bridge at around 3 p.m. She later says that she did not see the girls at this time and also did not hear anything. This is interesting because if at this time the girls were down the hill or even down by the creek and were either screaming for help or making a lot of noise, this woman would have probably heard them. I think Kelsey herself has mentioned how if someone is screaming near the creek and you're standing on the south end of the bridge, you will definitely be able to hear that. But this witness has stated that she didn't hear anything. So, assuming that she's correct and she was indeed at the south end of the bridge around 3 p.m., then we can probably guess that either the crime had already been committed by that point, or maybe the girls were still alive but weren't screaming because they were being controlled at gunpoint or something like that. 
Also at 3 p.m., a young couple arrives at the same lot that the girls were dropped off at. This couple also begins to walk the 501 trail. And the young man in this couple would later say that between 3.10 to 3.15 p.m., he saw a man resembling Bridge Guy who passed the couple walking towards the Freedom Bridge. The girlfriend didn't notice him. Allegedly, the couple was arguing at the time, so maybe that's why. But the boyfriend says that he did. He says that the man was wearing a hat but didn't have a hoodie pulled over it, which, remember, is different from what the 16-year-old had said about the hoodie being pulled over the hat. He also says that the man had a scarf covering the lower half of his face. So now we have two witnesses who saw someone who resembles Bridge Guy, was wearing blue jacket, blue jeans, a hat, possibly a hoodie, and also some sort of scarf. And these two witnesses would later be the source of the first sketch. Now, neither of these witnesses were happy with the outcome of the sketch. That may have been why it took them so long to release the sketch. Remember, it wasn't released until a few months after Um, that first press conference. Both witnesses were also with at least one other person who did not notice the bridge guy. And both witnesses also say that they probably wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. So in my opinion, I do think that the first witness is credible. I believe she came forward before the girl's bodies were even found. And I think it's really important that this guy gave her a look that scared her. That means that even though this guy supposedly blends into a crowd and can go unnoticed, there is something about him that is off. Something about him, maybe it's the way he looks at teenage girls, that is not normal. And if this 16-year-old witness was creeped out by him, and if Abby and Libby were creeped out by him enough to start videotaping him, I think that means something. I think that means that there are other people out there, probably other young females, who have encountered this guy before and who have been, for whatever reason, creeped out or scared of him. With the second witness, I do have some questions about that sighting. First of all, if this indeed was Bridge Guy walking back after having committed the crime, Wouldn't he have, at the very least, been wet? He had just waded back and forth through the creek, so presumably at least the bottom of his pants would have been wet. And even more so than that, because, yeah, if his ankles were wet, maybe the witness wouldn't have noticed that, or maybe it would have dried by that time. But even more than that, wouldn't he have been covered in blood? I mean, and I know we haven't talked about theories about cause of death yet, but it has been said that this was a brutal murder, and the way I interpret that is that there must have been at least a bit of blood at the crime scene, and by association, there must have been some blood on him. Unless he did like a super fast outfit change, wouldn't he have had some blood on him at least? And wouldn't the girlfriend have noticed him even if they were arguing? So that is the main thing that kind of makes me doubt this witness. I mean, not saying that he's lying. Maybe he did, in fact, see someone 
But whether that was bridge guy or not, I do have my doubts. And maybe that's why the first sketch that we have is now known to be not super accurate. Maybe because it wasn't a picture of bridge guy at all. Maybe it's a combination of what the first witness saw, which I think probably was actually bridge guy, and whoever it was that this second witness saw. I also think that the fact that both witnesses saw something covering the bottom half of his face means that probably the bottom half of the sketch is not super accurate. So around this time when supposedly the second witness saw the man leaving the bridge is when Derek, Libby's father, first calls Libby to tell her that he's almost there to pick them up. This was at 3.11 p.m. At 3.14 p.m., Derek is at the parking lot to pick up the girls, and he doesn't see them, so he calls Libby again, and once again, there's no answer. 3.15 p.m., Derek begins walking the trail. 3.20 p.m., he encounters Flannel Shirt Guy walking towards him from the direction of the bridge. He asks this guy, have you seen two girls? And the guy says, no, but I did see a couple up towards the bridge. Presumably, this is the same couple we just talked about. Derek says, okay, and because this guy had just said that the girls weren't over there, he takes a different trail. And there's a lot of speculation about flannel shirt guy online. I'm not really going to go into that because I'm guessing he was looked into and ruled out by police. But I do want to know what exactly he was doing on the trails that day because Remember, Derek would pass him again a little later, so it seems like he was kind of just going back and forth on the trails, which is fine, like he's allowed to do that, but I want to know what did he see? Did he see Bridge Guy? Did he see anyone else? Where did he come from? You know, we know he was walking away from the bridge when Derek first encountered him, so had he actually crossed the bridge? Did he see anyone while he was crossing the bridge, if he did? I just have a lot of questions. Okay, so let's just take a moment to think about how crazy tight this timeline is. Especially that witness who was also on the bridge at 3pm and took a photo. At the most, she had just missed the girls by maybe 30 minutes. At most. That is crazy to me. And the fact that she didn't hear anything leads me to believe that the crime was probably mostly over by 3 p.m., which leaves pretty much just 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes at most, of a time frame for Bridge Guy to have committed these murders. Because I'm sure Libby and Abby, and we'll talk about this later, but I am convinced that they did not go down without a fight. Which leads me to believe that if they were still alive and fighting at 3pm, that woman on the bridge would have heard them. I also think it's interesting that as far as we know, she didn't see Bridge Guy. So where was he at this time? If we are to believe that he did cross back over the bridge after committing the crime, was he like waiting for her to leave before crossing the bridge? Was he just not yet back at the bridge at this point? The timeline is just so tight, it seems like he either got really lucky or maybe he left by a different route. So let's talk about the recording that Libby took. 
First of all, I just think it is incredible that Libby had the foresight to know that something was off and begin to video this man, presumably partially in secret. To be 14 years old and to be as aware of your surroundings as she was is incredible. And I think that just makes this case so much more heartbreaking. These girls were incredibly smart. They were careful. They went to the bridge together and they stuck together. And they were smart enough to give us this evidence, to take this video, and yet we still haven't found the guy. I think that is just so devastating, but also really speaks to the girls' intelligence. So why did Libby start recording? We know that she took that video of Bridge Guy when he was around 65 feet away from them. That is quite far. I mean, at that point, he probably hadn't done anything to overtly threaten them. You know, he probably hadn't swung his gun around yet because he wasn't close enough to have that control over them. If he had threatened them at that point, they could have still made a run for it. So what was he doing that made Libby so uncomfortable that she started filming him? It could have been just the simple fact that he was the only other person on this bridge walking towards them, effectively blocking their only way out from this dead end on the other side of the bridge. Or it could have been that they had seen him earlier on the trails and maybe he gave them a look like that other witness mentioned that scared her. And so when they saw him again walking towards them, their alarm bells went off. Some people have mentioned that maybe Libby was just filming something else and happened to capture Bridge Guy in the background. I don't really subscribe to that theory because of a few reasons. First, if we are to believe that the video that we have of Bridge Guy walking and also of him saying down the hill is one video, then that means that she took the video of him walking and continued to be so creeped out by him that she put the phone in her pocket and continued recording in secret. That tells me that she started taking that video on purpose and continued to take it on purpose. The other reason why I believe that Libby purposefully took this video is because Libby was said to be very alert of her surroundings. Like I said, she was really into true crime. She wanted to study forensics. And her sister, Kelsey, has mentioned that Libby was always very aware of what was going on around her. So I do think that Libby, you know, maybe she was in the middle of taking a photo or a video of her and Abby when she happened to notice this guy behind him and panned to him. But I do think that she purposefully wanted to include him in this video. I don't necessarily think that she knew that he would try anything with them or do anything bad to them, but I think she got a feeling that something is a little off about this guy, and maybe she wanted to take this video to show to her family later on and be like, hey, do you know this guy? He was, you know, following us on the bridge, or he did X, Y, and Z, something like that. People have also asked, why didn't she just call the police? She had her phone with her. Why didn't they call someone or why didn't they run off into the woods away from him? Well, first of all, they were in the middle of the wilderness, so it is possible that the service was pretty poor there. Second of all, I don't think they were creeped out enough at that point to either call 911 or make a run for it. I think they were creeped out, don't get me wrong, 
But how many times as women, or even as young girls, have we felt creeped out by a man and then second-guessed ourselves, thought to ourselves, maybe we're overreacting, is this really nothing, and we're just making it into something? I also think a lot about how young girls are socialized to be nice, to not cause a ruckus, to not make a scene, to be good girls and trust authority. I think a lot about the scene from the movie Room, where the main character is talking to her mother and she says something along the lines of, well, you know, maybe if you hadn't told me to just be nice all the time, I wouldn't have gone and helped that guy who later abducted me. We tell young girls all the time to be nice, to be a good girl, and the fact that these girls had the foresight at just ages 13 and 14 to know something was wrong, to know that this guy is creepy and might try something with us, is such a sad testament to how common the terrorization of young women is, starting at such a young age. And oftentimes, you don't know just how dangerous a situation is until it's too late. And I think that this was the case here. If you were to call the police or run off anytime a man creeped you out, I mean, I would have so many situations where I would have called the police and nothing ended up happening. So I don't think they knew what this guy was going to do until it was too late. And maybe they didn't want to, you know, seem like they were overreacting or making something out of nothing. Sometime around 2.30 p.m., the man on the bridge approaches the girls and says, guys, down the hill. Now, because we have never seen the part of the video that corresponds to this audio, we don't know exactly what the bridge guy was doing when he said this to the girls. It's theorized that at this point, Libby had put her phone in her pocket or otherwise concealed her phone, and that's why we don't have video footage of this moment and also why the sound quality is so poor. Initially, law enforcement had also only released the down the hill part. They didn't release the guy's part until I think about two years after. So why they withheld that for so long, I'm not sure. But I'm guessing that there was a bit of a pause between guys and down the hill. You know, maybe he says guys to get their attention and the girls respond and then he says down the hill. I don't know, but there has been a lot of speculation about the tone of this guy's voice, his inflection, his word choice, so let's dive into that a little bit here. In my opinion, there is a big change in tone from when he says guys to when he says down the hill. When he says guys, it sounds very casual. I mean, It's the kind of tone I would use if I was talking to a group of friends or a group of kids or even someone on the street whose attention I wanted to get. Because of this, there has been some speculation that this guy knew the girls. And I can see why people think this, but I don't think that just because he chose the word guys means that he must know these girls. Personally, I say guys to practically everyone, doesn't matter if I just met them or have known them forever. I probably won't say guys to someone who's a lot older than me or someone in a professional setting, 
But if I'm talking to a group of people around my age or younger, I will probably call them guys. So I don't think it's necessarily strange or all that significant that he addresses the girls as guys. It does sound really casual the way he says it, but I think that might have even been a deliberate choice on this guy's part in order to kind of appease the girls. Because when I think about it, if someone said, hey guys, to me, it's such a casual greeting that it would almost cause me to like instinctively let my guard down. I don't know why, it's just like a, a an automatic response that I have. And I wonder if this was that type of a situation where he needed to get their attention and do so in a way that wouldn't raise any alarm bells. And personally, I don't think the girls knew this guy because... If they did, why would they film him? Wouldn't they just be like, hey, that's Mr. So-and-so? You know, they wouldn't have had any reason to film him if they knew him. And also, wouldn't they have said his name during the recording? I mean, it's probably likely that they would have addressed him by name if if they knew him. So wouldn't that be on the tape? Okay, so moving on to when he says, down the hill. In stark contrast to when he says guys, in my opinion, this sounds very commanding, very authoritative. Like, he is giving them a command and he has no doubt in his mind that they will follow through. He's confident with not a hint of nervousness or worry in his voice. Maybe it's because he knows that there's no one else around them. Maybe they're already at the end of the bridge when he says this and... He knows that it would have taken someone at least around 10 minutes to cross the bridge, so even if there was someone at the other end of the bridge about to cross, they wouldn't really be able to make out what was happening on the dead-end side of the bridge. Maybe, and this has been speculated a lot but never confirmed by anyone, maybe he pulls out a gun or some other weapon on them before ordering them down the hill, which is also why... He sounds so confident that they will follow through. Another possibility that I think is really interesting and that I haven't seen discussed much is that maybe he came up with some sort of a ruse. Maybe he told the girl something like, you're not allowed to be on this bridge. Go down the hill and I'll show you the exit, which I think is technically true. I think technically no one is allowed to be on that bridge, so... Maybe that's why he sounds so authoritative and commanding, and maybe that's why the girls listened to what he was saying and did, in fact, go down the hill. I've also heard a lot of people who think that the comfort and ease with which he says guys and down the hill indicates that he is someone who orders kids around a lot, like a teacher or a coach. And I've thought about this theory a lot. I'm not a teacher myself or a coach. I don't work with kids. I don't even have kids. But I do have younger family members and I do have to tell them what to do a lot. And the way he says down the hill is the way I would tell one of them to, you know, do their homework or clean up after themselves or something like that. Like, I would probably use that same exact tone that this man uses So I don't think you necessarily have to be a teacher or work with kids in order to use that tone of voice, especially if you are of the belief that Bridge Guy is a little bit older, you know, he's talking to these girls who are quite 
younger than him, I can imagine that he might take on a tone similar to a parent or a teacher. So while I think it's possible that he is a teacher of some sorts, I don't think that just the way he says down the hill means that he has to be someone who has experience working with kids. I've also heard people say that he must work in the school system because of the fact that that was a day off from school. And so in order to know that there would be kids on the trails that day, he had to have been a teacher or someone who worked in the school system and would know that and who would also have that day off. I think that's interesting. I, I don't know how publicized it was that kids would have a day off from school that day. I mean, in a small town, if school is closed for a day, people tend to know or if they don't know, then they will soon find out just because of how many kids will be out and about and not at school that day. I mean, maybe he has children in his life who also had the day off from school that day, and so that's how he knows that. Maybe he didn't even know that it was a day off from school. He just happened to choose that day to go on the trails and was pleasantly surprised when he saw, you know, all of these kids there. Um, maybe he was just hanging out around there waiting for school to let out because, you know, this was a pretty popular spot for teens to hang out at. So I think it's possible that he works in a school, but I, I don't think that it's super likely. So I think this is a good spot to stop for now. We still have a lot to discuss, so stay tuned for another episode. And if you have any information regarding this case, no matter how small you might think it is, please contact the tip line at 844-459-5786. You can remain totally anonymous if you'd like. You can also email tips to abbyandlibbytip at c-a-c-o-s-h-r-f Sources for this episode include True Crime Garage Podcast, The Prosecutor's Podcast, Julie Melvin on YouTube, Hoosier Cold Cases on YouTube, The Mind Shock Podcast, WTHI TV on YouTube, and the Actus Rios Blogs Delphi Timeline.